0: Yeah, so it's February, and even if like, if you're in Auckland like us, you wouldn't know it was summer, because <laughs> it's just been so weird. Um, but this is still the month that where we celebrated Waitangi Day, right, at the beginning of the month, on the 6th. And, you know, for a lot of us as Kiwis, it's a great day because we get a day off work, right? Isn't that good? You get a day off work. And I am old enough to remember, I know I look incredibly young, but I am actually <laughs> old enough to remember um, seeing news reports and stuff going on as a kid around Waitangi Day. It had a little name switch for a while, and then it wasn't a holiday, and then it became a holiday, and you know, people were talking about this, and then I remember things like Bastion Point and a little bit closer to home, uh, the Raglan golf course being um, a big protest and that being handed back to the iwi, and uh, Eva Rickard was at the forefront of that. But you know, as a young uh, Pākehā boy, I didn't really understand what was going on, and I didn't, you know, as a, as a kid, you think that history is so far back, you know? Like you meet like really old people that are 30 years old and stuff like that, you have no perspective. And I thought, you know, isn't this from the past? Haven't we figured all this stuff out now? You know, what's going on here? I got a little bit older and um, got to hear a few more sort of narratives on some of these things, but I, I came to realise that I was actually pretty ignorant, or when I look back, I realise I was pretty ignorant of what was going on in our nation at that time, in the 70s and 80s, and, and even, even today. And then, of course, Alison and I have been out of the country serving in uh, east asia for over 20 years so we've been back three years now but what a three years it's been eh? pandemic cyclones all kinds of weird stuff going on so it just feels like we're just starting to get our feet now with these new jobs and stuff but there's been a tremendous renaissance of maori culture and language since we've been away that we didn't really appreciate like on our little short visits because we were just in and out you know and it's really incredible what's happened and there's reconciliation that's happened but there's still a lot more to be done and I've realized that yes some of the attitudes that I might have had from those years ago really have to change and I think being overseas has helped us right because we we worked with a so-called like minority people who were um in a country where the majority had no understanding of their needs and their culture and their language and didn't make any room for that. And so because we identified with that group and learned their language and their culture, we, that, I think that's helped us a bit as we've come back to New Zealand in this different stage of history that we're at. So I'm gonna be talking about Waitangi and Covenant, as you can see, and I'm gonna talk about them together and separately. And you're going to forgive me if I say anything offensive, as I'm new to this. It's new territory for me. But here I am stepping out. Thank you very much, Pastor Hans. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the Treaty of Waitangi is New Zealand's founding document, right? Māori are the tangata whenua of this whenua, of this land. And then we, toiwi, non-Māori, are the tangata tiriti. And the important thing there is that we... The latter group, we belong to this country by virtue of the treaty, right? This is, that, that's what gives us the right uh, to be here. And the treaty as such is a really important founding document of this nation, and some Māori uh, in those early days, and even now, call it He Kawenata the sacred covenant, because as we'll see, the treaty is a kind of covenantal document Te Tiriti, or Waitangi, takes its name from the place in the Bay of Islands where it was first signed on the 6th of February, 1840. And that was between the British Crown and about 540 uh, rangatira or chiefs. It's a lot. And there were so many because Māori numbered about 200,000 people at that time. That's the probably the best estimate, whereas the settler community and all the whalers and uh, other Europeans that came in were only 2,000. 200,000? 2,000. Huge difference. It's just hard for us to to picture that. Māori had had a lot of uh, interaction with Europeans by that point and taken advantage of uh, certain technology and stuff and they were exporting goods internationally, had their own trading ships farming lands, fishing, supplying settlers and the settlers were actually heavily economically dependent on Māori. Māori were growing entire crops of um, potato and kumara uh, for the settlers raising pigs and other animals. So why then in 1840 did they invite the British crown to share the land? one of the biggest issues was that of lawlessness and disorder by many of the Europeans who landed on these shores because it was just seen as, you know, this uh, place of, of opportunity and it brought a lot of terrible things with it, so much so that um, the missionaries would describe those, a lot of those Europeans as the scourge of the Pacific. And Kororareka, which is now uh, called Russell, also in the Bay of Islands, was uh, known in those times as the hellhole of the Pacific. Isn't that a great reputation for your town? Come to our town! It's the hellhole of the Pacific. Not a very good uh, marketing slogan, is it? Drunkenness in the streets, brawling, prostitution, brothels. Uh, It was really bad. And then you had people like Edward Wakefield and others who were selling... Land to set you know, prospective settlers back in England that he didn't even own and had no right to sell, and creating all of these um, wrong expectations and uh, difficult scenarios that would play out later. So anyway, uh, so Captain William Hobson was sent to New Zealand to negotiate this treaty. British resident, his secretary, others did the drafting of the treaty. And then the English draft was translated quickly into Te Reo Māori in one night. Now, I've worked in translation, and, you know, I know that an important document, you need more time than that, and you need a process of checking and everything like that. Any of you here who are bilingual know that, you know, translation is no simple matter, especially important documents. His son was involved, and he'd been raised bilingually. Um, so he was kind of virtually a native speaker but it was a huge challenge and I think poor old Henry Williams I just would love to have seen his face when they said this needs to be finished by tomorrow morning you know, I'd be like what? (laughs) but anyway he believed in the treaty and he was happy to do it and it was this Maori text that was signed by the rangatira and and Hobson at Waitangi the problem was as we know now there are subtle differences between the uh, English text and the Māori text, and it sort of, there's been arguments and there are fresh discussions about what do those words really mean, and what did they mean back then, and how did Māori understand them, and how did the missionaries understand them, and, and what about, you know, the government officials? So it's, it's actually very complex, but there seems to be this difference, you know, where some feel, oh, the te reo version confirms Māori authority, and Maybe their sovereignty too. While the Crown's English language version says that Maori gave the sovereignty to the uh, to the Crown or to the Queen, and so that's that's still a dispute that's going on now. But it feels like many would say that what Maori agreed to was you come here and form a government to rule rule your people, and then we will rule our people, iwi by iwi, and then. Um, together we'll figure out how to govern this land together. So which version is right? Well, that's still a dispute <laughs> today, but actually the Tereo version has now been written uh, into law uh, like as a reference, and not just the English version. And the Crown's English version, for however it's criticised, it did guarantee Māori the full, exclusive, and undisturbed possession of their lands, estates, forestry, fisheries, and other taonga, or treasures, property, as long as they wish, and to be given full rights as British citizens. And if we could have that passage from Ephesians up, William Hobson stated after the signing, we are now one, one people. And many people believe he was actually referring to this passage in Ephesians, because while there were a lot of ratbags running around the Pacific at that time, there were a lot of Christians, too, in the um, European community. And this, of course, is talking about the Jews and the Gentiles becoming uh, one uh, in Christ in a covenant union, and... It was never meant to mean that now, oh, that means Maori identity and culture and sovereignty should be just taken in under the Pākehā. It never meant that. I mean, it would have been ridiculous to think that when you've got 200,000 people here and only 2,000 there. But it has been misinterpreted like that because what people don't understand is that you can be one in Christ and still maintain your own cultural identity. Okay, so this is where we've been as we've uh, lived in Asia trying to uh, show that being a Christian doesn't mean that you just abandon your culture I mean of course there are things in every culture that need to be um, redeemed by Christ right? We don't just say oh, everything's just fine but our, our identity uh, in that culture still remains in our identity in Christ now What I'm talking about today, of course, is this, uh, as we look at it covenantally, this treaty that protected Maori sovereignty, rights, and resources would be continually violated and broken very quickly and created a very difficult situation, which we are still, you know, we're trying to work out the consequences of that today. Hope this is not too heavy going for you. (laughs) The aim is not to make all the Pākehā in the room feel guilty, but we do need to remind ourselves and take it seriously. Um, And as we see in the Scripture, there is is a place to lament of things that have gone wrong, and we see the Book of Lamentations that's doing that. We see in the Psalms the lament for injustice and things gone wrong. I also hope that Māori in the room won't think, that's not quite accurate, and he, that's wrong, you know? Hope you'd be gracious towards me and I do invite any, any uh, comment as well later on. So yeah, I don't need to list all the things that went wrong but I think probably land confiscation would have been uh, one of the biggest injustices that happened that has caused you know this knock-on effect that's been so terrible. Okay, so switching gears slightly. I want to put up a definition of covenant now. I've mentioned this word a few times. And so for all you Hebrew scholars in the room, I've got that little word beret there. When you read Bible dictionaries and all these um, scholarly works, it's actually very difficult to get a consistent definition of what a covenant is. And I think one of the reasons for that is that there are different types of covenant in the ancient Near East and in the Bible, which scholars don't always appreciate when they try to define it. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But what I want to highlight here is that when we talk about a covenant, we're talking about an elected or chosen relationship, not a natural relationship, and it includes obligations under an oath. It's a sacred uh, relationship. And through covenant, the duties and privileges of kinship, family ties, are extended To another individual or another group as as these two come together and then God so a covenant can be with God like we see in the Bible can also be just between two individuals or two groups of people two nations so we see Genesis 20 uh, 21 I think it is Abraham and Abimelech come together and make a covenant and then under Joshua um, he did that with the Gibeonites made a covenant But we're going to look more at the divine covenants between God and people today. And even in those human covenants, God is standing behind as a witness to the covenant when the people make it, especially if they have faith. In some cases, in the Near East, it was other gods, you know. But in New Zealand, um, I think it's indisputable that many um, of the rangatira, the chiefs, saw this as a spiritual transaction that was happening and uh, many on the European side did too hence the name sacred covenant that I mentioned. So two parties make a binding promise to each other and they're bound as one. In Malachi 2.14 in the Old Testament we see that God talks about uh, marriage as a covenant so that's a good illustration. So We have laws that, you know, family members can't marry each other, right? So when people get married, they're not family, but they come together, and because of covenant, which has a legal but also this relational aspect, they become kin. They become family, and then they start this new family, and the family prospers and grows and expands, you know, if everything goes well. So that's different to just a regular kind of contract. Like we rent a house now in Auckland, and we just made a contract and we signed it, but it's like very specific about a particular you know, piece of property. It's time limited, doesn't go on forever, which a covenant typically does, and also it doesn't have that relational aspect. I'm not becoming <coughs> family with my landlord. I don't, I don't want to do that. He, he doesn't want to do that, okay? So it's quite different. It's a different kind of thing. So, we see the idea of covenant right through the Bible, even from the early chapters, where God creates this good world and then he appoints humans as his partners to take that goodness that, you know, when God created and said it was good and spread it throughout the world. That was the plan. That Eden, this paradise garden, would spread through the chaos of the rest of the world but we know that didn't work out well they rebelled and this broken partnership is the bible's explanation for why we are stuck in a world of sin corruption and injustice and I I believe it remains the best explanation for everything that's going on around us of course the difference now is that like compared to back then is that God has broken in God has done something in Jesus that's actually changed the world and is changing the world so what he does the first thing that he does after this thing happens is he selects one man called Abram who becomes Abraham out of many and he makes a covenant with Abraham and in return God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what's right and just But in this covenant that he makes, and we would call this like a royal grant type covenant, is that God takes on most of the responsibility. All he wants to do is see that Abraham's a faithful guy, which he proves. And you see the covenant rituals, you'll see a Genesis 15, and then it moves to Genesis 17, another stage, and then the final stage in Genesis 22, when um, Abraham shows that he has devoted to the lord that god swears an oath by himself and that is seen by scholars as the ratification of the covenant and from that time on god's promise is sealed that he is going to bring a blessing to all the peoples on earth all the families of the earth some translations say so that's sort of like the uh, summary of the covenant that's about to happen The next thing that we uh, see is that um, Abraham's family grows into the nation of Israel, and they, because of the famine, they end up in Egypt, they have a hard time there, God brings them out, and then at the foot of Mount Sinai, he makes the first covenant with them as a nation. And, um, yeah, thank you for that, Exodus 19. So this is like the preamble to the covenant that he's going to make. And notice he says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, the one he's about to make, you will be like my treasured possession out of all the nations. And then he says, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And to Moses, he said, these are the words you to speak to the Israelites. If. Now, this is a different kind of covenant, and it's more the obligations of the covenant are more even between the two partners, between what God is promising to do and what Israel has to do. And that's why there's the if there. If you do this. Sadly, before the covenant ceremony had even been finished up on the mountain, the people made an idol, a golden calf, and they broke the covenant right there, and it had to be redone straight away, and then it got redone again, and it ended up at the end of Deuteronomy, where you have a third type of covenant, which we would call like a vassal covenant, where there's parallels where you have a king that conquers someone and says, okay, this is just how it's going to be. And that's that's how Israel lived uh, for the rest of their time. You'll notice, too, Israel were called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were never called that again because they never stepped into their destiny. And God had not yet provided the answer to that. So if you haven't stepped into yours yet, be assured that God has provided an answer, but he hadn't at that point because history was working towards a solution. Sadly, when Israel broke the covenant, instead of becoming part of the solution for all the nations of the world to be blessed, they became part of the problem. And then God made a covenant with David, King David, uh, that that through one of David's descendants, these original promises to Abraham And the kind of kingdom that God wanted to create could come true, even though under the covenant with Israel, things had gone badly. And We see in uh, 2 Samuel, we have the language of kinship here, and you'll find this around the covenant a lot. I will be his father, and he will be my son. See, this is what God is wanting to do. He's wanting to make family out of all the people in the earth. So those are kind of like the three main covenants, Abraham, Israel, and David, that God made in his effort to restore the whole world, even things, even though things were going really badly. In fact, they went so badly that the prophets who were out there speaking God's word to the people were looking ahead to a time where how could those promises to Abraham and David be fulfilled, and they called it a new covenant that God was going to make. And we see that in uh, Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. there. Then a few hundred years pass and people are waiting for this answer, for the son of Abraham, the son of David to come along. And what do we see? I wonder if you've ever noticed this before in the very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1. What does it say? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's covenant language. That's announcing at the beginning of the New Testament that all of these promises that have been made by God to fix this place and to bring forgiveness and to bring freedom and to bring life in a relationship with God are going to be done through this child that's been born and we read on in the genealogy all of his connections to Abraham and David okay and then we see hebrews 9:15 that christ himself becomes the mediator of this new covenant and he died as a ransom to set people free from the sins committed under the first and to enable all of the nations to be pulled into this and you know at the last supper that meal jesus had with his 12 chosen disciples before he went to the cross he described in matthew and mark and luke's gospel that this was a covenant sacrifice that he was making and in luke just to be really clear he spells it out and says this is the new covenant in my blood Through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. Now, specifically, we've been talking about Israel's situation, right? But that applies today because any person who says, I follow Jesus, I yield my life to him, I surrender my life to him, and I invite him to come in and give me a new life and a hope and a future, is actually becoming part of the new covenant even if they've never heard of it. It means that for us today, if you've been away from God, or if you've made a promise to God and failed, if you've let him down, if you've been an unfaithful covenant partner even, that the new covenant is different to that covenant with Israel. Because Jesus has already lived the perfect life and been the perfect covenant partner. So in him, we are like our lives are attached to him and we become Jesus in us, us in Jesus as this faithful covenant partner. And then not only that, he's given us his spirit to empower us to live the life that God has called us to. It's not just, okay, I've made it possible, now go and do it yourself. But that's God, right? He actually gives us the power inside. And I pray that if you haven't had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, that that would happen to you today or in the near future, that you would understand that he is in you and wants to empower you in that way. So what about the treaty? It was talking about not this kind of parallel, between the Israelite covenant that got broken really quickly and the Waitangi covenant that got broken really quickly and the damage that both of them caused. So there's a whole lot of ways to look at this, and I think back to that Ephesians passage, you know, the the covenant at Waitangi says God, well, it doesn't state that God is doing it, but it states through the covenant the two peoples become one that we are now one. And I do believe that us as Christians, we we need to be not people who are standing back and saying, let's just see how this plays out. I'm not really sure about this. But Christians are people who are active in the work of reconciliation. What did the Apostle Paul say? He's committed to us the message of reconciliation. And that's what covenant is all about. And so I believe that the divine covenant, the new covenant that we are all in as Christians, will empower us to be good partners of the human covenant. And, you know, we know lots of good things have happened already, right, in this nation. But there's so much reconciliation that needs to happen yet. There's so much brokenness and pain and. Difficulty and strife and violence. And you know, a lot of these things can actually be traced back to the breach of that covenant. And So let us be people that are prepared to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. You know, as I mentioned that since being back, we've, we've had to have a bit of a shift in our understanding of how all of this works when we were studying at Laidlaw College. We had access to a lot of Maori believers there who were able to give us their take on stuff that would come up in the news that in the past we might have reacted badly to, like ihu matā and various claims and different stuff. What does that mean? And shouldn't that stuff just stay in the past? And it's like, no. We could. They helped us to like gain some understanding of what was really going on and what needed to be put right and which uh, which side of that we wanted to be on. So. And I'd caution us, you know, even if some of our favorite politicians or political parties start saying something, don't just believe them. Don't just accept everything you hear. Look at the facts. Dig deeply. Hear from the other side. You might be surprised that the people that you normally disagree with are in the right this time because we don't, as Christians, we don't want to be in this world of those people are all bad and these people are all good, right? When it I'm talking about politics now. We don't want to be people like that. Yeah, so the old me might have been quick to dismiss some of those things, but the new me is wanting to say, listen to understand. What part can I play in this message of reconciliation and restoring this broken covenant that God has made? The new covenant, the divine covenant helps us to be faithful partners to the human covenant. Abraham and David looked forward to that new because God is the way maker when everything looked bad. And so God is our way maker where there seems to be no way. Here in Aotearoa, as believers, we're a new covenant people, but I do believe that God is empowering us to be good Waitangi covenant people to that this nation would truly be one nation where we are united and that uh, God would get glory for what happens as we turn our hearts in that direction.